According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me one more time in the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 11, where we are dealing with episode number two and episode number four in the uh, final week at Jerusalem, the cursing of the fig tree. And the cleansing of the temple is episode two. As don't worry about that. We know about that. Don't worry about that. He's okay. See, that's the distractions. What happens when he put the blinds up? All right. Where was I? Episode two and episode four. That's what we got Doug here. Doug's for security purposes. Don't have to worry about. Episode two is the cursing of the fig tree and the cleansing of the temple. Episode 4, as it's structured in A.T. Robertson's uh, Harmony of the Gospels, is kind of the follow-up to the cursing of the fig tree, and that is the next morning on Wednesday morning when the disciples observe that it's withered, and uh, the Lord uses that occasion to teach them about prayer, and so that's where we presently are. We got a good jump on this last week, I think, and so we should be able to tie it together here today. Um, More things, of course, coming up. Episode 3 is the attraction of sacrifice from John chapter 12. Uh, Then the uh, challenge by the Sanhedrin is episode number five, and uh, we'll just be moving right along. So good to be in the Passion Week, good to be in the, uh, there's so many events that take place in this week, leading up to, of course, the the work of our salvation. Before we begin, let's take time for silent prayer to make sure that we are filled with the Holy Spirit and prepared to handle spiritual truth, shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and the privilege and blessing that it is for us to assemble together. We thank you, Father, for the um, just the, the blessing that the Life of Christ series has been, that it continues to be, and Father, that we anticipate it, uh, it will uh, prove to be even more in the, uh, in the classes ahead. Father, it's just uh, it's been such a delight, uh, more than 300 lessons now, and, and uh, so much information, Father, that Uh, I just thank you for making it available for each one of us. And I thank you, Father, in Christ's name. Amen. All righty. Someone said, what in the world are we going to do when we finally finish Life of Christ? It's been, you know, it takes seven years and some 400-something lessons. And what are you going to do when that's over? I said, I'll probably start over at the beginning again. (laughs) You know, hard to say. I am thinking, though, about adapting some of it for a Sunday morning series whereby uh, we can feature, spotlight certain segments of it or certain components of the Lord's ministry for the uh, 11 o'clock hour on Sundays, and I haven't haven't uh, settled my mind on that yet. All right, one week ago we began this, and uh, let's take a look at it again. Um, Mark gives us the best sequence, much better than Matthew. Matthew's not big on sequence. In fact, Matthew... Couldn't give two hoots about sequence and most of what he writes. Uh, but in the Mark record, we've got very good sequence. Uh, and so when it says on the next day uh, in Mark 11:12, we understand that to be Tuesday morning then of the Passion Week. That he uh, had his triumphal entry on Palm Monday, uh, which was uh, March 30th, 33 A.D. or Nisan 10, if you want to use the Nisan uh, dating system. So in verse 12, then on the next day, this is now Tuesday morning, March 31st of 33 A.D., or Nisan 11, three days before the cross. Uh, When they had left Bethany, he became hungry, seeing at a distance a fig tree and leaf. He went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples were listening. If you skip the next part here, which we'll deal with today, dealing with the cleansing of the temple, and go on down, you'll notice verse 19, when evening came, they would go out of the city. Then verse 20, as they were passing by in the morning, this now would be Wednesday morning, April Fool's Day, April 1st, 33 AD. They didn't have April Fool's Day back then, so you can relax about that. Nisan 12, and as they were passing by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. And being reminded, Peter said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered, saying to them, have faith in God. In other words, believe. He is commanding believers to believe. 
And the unbelief of a believer is such an important concept and one that we have to guard against. We have to constantly remind ourselves that faith didn't end when we got saved. We continue to walk by faith. And faith must be exercised daily. Faith must be exercised moment by moment. And um, this is a, a tremendous illustration of that. And he goes on to teach related to prayer and the necessity of a faith operation in your prayer life. You know, when you think about uh, faith, hope, and love, and they all abide, and they're all operational functions. Um, I tend to think of love more in our ambassadorial function and more in our priestly function, maybe hope more in our priestly function. Uh, but faith is in our, in our prayer function, you understand, because we have to ask believing. And that's, uh, that's what we're dealing with. Now, we gave uh, one point of study and then got uh, into the subpoints before we ran out of time last week. This is Tuesday morning, Nissan 11, Jesus cursed a fig tree. And uh, the environmentalists, of course, took him to court to sue him for <laughs> cursing a fig tree. Uh, but, you know, he is the creator of all fig trees, so he's free to curse what he created, right? Jesus desired its fruit, but it was bearing no fruit. There's a principle there. Right off the bat, we want to understand that. We're commanded to be ready in season and out of season. And the idea that, well, isn't it a, a rational excuse? Isn't it, I mean, is it the tree's fault? That it wasn't bearing any fruit? Okay, that's not a tree's fault. But this occasion is going to be used by the Lord to teach some amazing principles, not only related to prayer, but also to portray what he's observing as he's approaching Jerusalem. What he's observing in the sense of the cursed nation. You think the cursed tree is bad? The cursed nation is what that tree is representing. Being out of season is no, is no excuse when we are commanded to be ready in season and out of season, 2 Timothy 4.2. So point B, in the fruitless fig tree, Jesus saw the nation of Israel. And we examined that under those two subpoints. Cursing the tree allowed its message to match the pronouncement of the destruction already decreed against Israel. Remember, the fig tree is a symbol of Israel, a symbol of Israel's blessing. Okay, Temporal blessings, you understand. The olive tree might represents something else as it relates to the oil the olive produces and, and different things there. Both the fig tree and the olive tree are, are huge in Israel symbolism, even to this day, for example. Fig tree appears on the different shekel uh, coins and whatnot of, of Israeli currency and so forth. Well, um, the millennial blessings, of course, that every man will sit under his fig, that you have the opportunity to fellowship in the things of the Lord under your own fig tree in your own backyard. Well, they're going to have to wait for those millennial blessings. They're not going to come immediately. They've rejected their, their Christ. They've rejected their king. And uh, second advent's going to be a delay. And uh, as of now, it's 2010 uh, A.D. So uh, it's nearly uh, 2,000 years and counting since uh, they rejected their king in 33 A.D. Uh, but Micah 4.4, 4, Zechariah 3.10, there's other passages that relate to the fig tree and the blessings associated with um, the, uh, the the second advent of Jesus Christ. But cursing this tree is going to allow the tree's message. See, Christ, uh, this tree is going to stand there for as long as they let the dead tree stand there as a reminder to the nation of Israel that, uh, that those blessings have been forsaken. Thirdly, point C now, the illustration of the withered tree is not an occasion for Jesus to teach regarding the first and second advent. It, it paints that picture silently it teaches that message all on its own but jesus uses the occasion to teach about prayer the withered tree allows jesus to reinforce previous teachings related to prayer so he's going to let the tree speak for itself and he's going to use the uh, disciples seeming uh, disbelief that that he would curse this tree to start talking about prayer. Yeah, you can curse a tree. You can throw a mountain into the sea. You can do anything. Provided, of course, it's a prayer, a, a, a uh, prayer that's offered in terms of faith. And that's uh, what we want to pick up on because we uh, did not quite detail everything I wanted to get through last week. There were five some points here of which we only covered three. But this allows Jesus to reinforce previous teachings related to prayer. And that's common. We can do similar things around here. There's, a, there's an event. There's something. There's a, a visual aid or a reminder and uh, whatever it is, see, and it doesn't mean that that has to be the subject that gets taught. It could be something related to that or even something entirely different. You understand this just simply provides the occasion. And uh, 
was nothing new, by the way. Matthew chapter 17 was a previous episode. Luke chapter 17 was a previous episode. He's come back to this concept repeatedly. He wants these disciples to be men of prayer. And um, even leading up to this coming Thursday night, um, they still don't really grasp it. And uh, they think sleep is a little bit more important than prayer. And, <laughs> you know, uh, well, he keeps trying anyway, so so do I. So, all right, sub point one. The struggle in prayer is faith versus unbelief. Belief contrasted with doubting. All right. Now, the noun faith and the verb believe are the same. Don't, don't think they're different. They're absolutely the same. Faith is the noun pistis. Believe is the verb pistuo. They're cognates. It's the same term. It's unfortunate in English that uh, faith and believe are so widely different. Okay, coming from their own separate uh, derivations. Uh, but in, in Greek, it's the same. Absolutely the same. Pistis and pistuo. And it's contrasted with the unbelief or the doubting. Ah, pisteo. See, or ah, pistos would be an adjective form. And uh, so often, as is the case, unbelief is not just merely the absence of belief. Okay, It's not simply a, a failure to believe, but it is an active disbelief. It is an active voice verb in many places. It is a choice to not trust in the promises of God. To trust in yourself or to trust in something other than what God has promised. To trust in your own uh, understanding. So, um, again, I think we have a, a, a limitation in the English. And, our, and just our vocabulary feeds a misperception. That unbelief is just simply a, uh, a lack of, of believing. And it's more than that. It's absolutely more than that. So Matthew 21, verses 21 and 22 is the parallel text to this one, Mark 11:23, and of course, James 1, 6. If you're asking for something in prayer, doubting, what an insult. What an insult to the God of grace, to the God of sovereignty, the God of love, the one who wants us to ask, the one who knows what we need before we ask, but has designed us to ask for, for his good pleasure and for the glory of his son. So this is the struggle in prayer. Am I going to believe it? Am I going to believe it? And am I going to communicate that trust, that acceptance to him in my prayer life? That's what it comes down to. And that's what the Father wants to hear. All right. So, uh, again, it's verse 23 here of Mark 11. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it will be granted to him. It will be granted to him. To him, So there's the contrast, doubting or believing. And it comes from the heart. It comes from the core of who you are. Very important. We, in fact, did a little bit of that with our teenagers Sunday night, diagramming the, uh, the soul and the spirit and the heart and giving an a, uh, anthropology for the, uh, for the teenagers. So there's the contrast. Am I going to doubt or am I going to believe? See? And keep in mind, believing means claiming the promises. Believing means living in the Word of God. Believing doesn't mean just making something up out of thin air and then wishing strongly that it's going to happen. <laughs> we can't make it so just because we want it. That, uh, that becomes important. Secondly, faith is placed in an object. Faith is placed in an object. It is a response to a message. It is a response to a message. It is the action of trusting the one who is faithful. So it's not just making up something and hoping it turns out that way. That's not faith. You know, the skeptics accuse us of blind faith and nothing could be further from the truth. Blind faith is stupid. And if that's what Christianity was, I would agree with every mocker and every skeptic and every critic. I would agree with them. I'd say, yeah, blind faith is stupid. Might as well believe in the Easter Bunny. Okay. Or the Tooth Fairy or Santa Claus or some other kind of thing. But trusting in the faithful promises of the eternal one who cannot lie, that's not foolish. I think it's foolish not to. <laughs> foolish not to trust the one who cannot lie. <clears throat> so faith is placed in an object. It is a response to a message. Now that, <clears throat> quite clearly, the strongest message then, the strongest object for our faith is going to be that which is inspired in the text of the Word of God. All right, because not one jot, not one tittle, not, nothing here is going to be broken, and we understand that. 
But beyond the explicit text of Scripture, there are other components of things that we can place our faith in that are God's communication to us. See, as in the case of divine guidance, as in the case of the leading of the Holy Spirit, as in the case of of (coughs) faith convictions that He puts you under. Now, you can't point to a verse, see, I couldn't find a a third Timothy anywhere or another uh, book of the Bible back in 1990 that told me that it was the will of God for me to marry Sharon Schneider. Okay. And yet when under divine guidance through, through the study of scripture, through the principles, through the doctrines and, and through the, the, the divine guidance that takes place in prayer, I didn't have a doubt in my mind as to what God's will is. And so that can, again, it's, it's an exercise of faith, but it's a response to a message and in, in that case the message was god getting a hold of my heart and saying this is the woman you need to marry this is your help helpmate for the next however many years of ministry so faith is placed in an object again it's not just making something up and then wishing that it comes true faith is not a wish so romans ten fourteen, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of god Are you familiar with that passage understand that it requires a message it requires a messenger. It requires uh, communication of some sort. <clears throat> How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in Him whom they have not heard? You know, the, the creation only goes so far. A human being is without excuse as to the existence of God. That applies to God consciousness. That applies to the recognition of a creator by the testimony of the creation. But the natural revelation of of creation cannot lead an unbeliever to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. You can stare at all the trees, all the stars, all the bushes, all the birds and bees and bugs and whatever else. You will never understand that the, the God the Son became flesh, dwelt among us, went to the cross, took our place paid to satisfy the father in a substitutionary uh, sacrifice on our behalf that's not given in natural revelation it's given in special revelation it's given in the word of god and it has to be communicated or or that unbeliever is not going to get saved he might hear about it, he might read about it but somehow special revelation has to be communicated and that's what this verse very clearly says how will they believe in him whom they have not heard it's not possible faith has to be placed in an object And how will they hear without a preacher? And how will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. So faith is a response to a message. It is the action of trusting the one who is faithful. That's why if you believe a lie, it has no value. If you believe a liar, it has no value. Okay? If you believe something false, it has no value. The followers of Islam are very fervent in their religion, but there's no value because it's a lie. And, I, and it's, it's sad. I think a lot of the energy, you know, there's more devotion and dedication on the part of Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses. They, they knock on more doors than I do. Or uh, a uh, particular zeal to, uh, to pursue their religious expectations. That's not faith. It's not biblical faith in the in the uh, revealed word of God as we understand it. So thirdly, a faith prayer is not uttered on one's own initiative. It's not uttered on one's own initiative. I told you last week I was going to split this up, didn't I? And I forgot to go back and do that. So let me jot myself a note. I want to divide three into two parts, make it a three and a four. And then four will become five and five will become six. All right, a faith prayer is not uttered on one's own initiative. Jesus said that he can speak nothing on his own initiative, but only as the Father teaches him. John 5.30, John 8.28, John 14.10. Not uttered on one's own initiative. We've got to ask ourselves, why? Any request I have, any prayer I have, any class I teach, any communication, am I doing this on my own initiative? Or am I being sensitive to what the Father would have for me to do? 
Um, that's why I, I saturate so much prayer. What are we going to do after Minor Prophets is over? What's coming up next on Sunday mornings at 11 o'clock starting in January? I don't know yet. I got some ideas. I'm praying. But the last thing I want to do is just create something on my own initiative. Say, well, here's what I want to do. No, what, is, what does the flock need? What are the needs right now based on this testing, based on the struggles? And leaving it to the Father to shape that. Leaving it to Jesus Christ. He's head of the church. And so uh, I'm trying three or four different things, even five different things, and exploring. Putting some notes together, doing some studies, seeing uh, and, and things that, uh, that asking the Father to direct. And, uh, you know, like I did before we went to the Minor Prophets. And it just seemed that some of these other things I thought would be kind of a neat thing to do um, were frustrating, like I can't begin to tell you. The study was going nowhere, or just beating my head against a brick wall, and just didn't like how it was coming together. And, and uh, you know, I thought it kind of stunk in my study. Is that fair to say? I mean, it's still the living and abiding Word of God. Don't get me wrong. It's still, but it was nowhere near a Bible class, let alone a series. And then um, Hosea started to come into place, and Obadiah started to come into place, and the notes started to gel, and I started to see things and started to get excited about it. And so I think, huh, this could be a class. This could be a series. Given that to the Father. Father, is this, is this what I'm supposed to be t- teaching? Is this what the Lord would have my flock to learn? And then, boy, it just starts to flow and things, notes start coming together. All right, I'm good with that. <laughs> okay? I'd be kind of embarrassed to teach that other thing. It was looking pretty ugly. So, um, more and more in terms of faith prayers, not uttered on one's own initiative. And so this requires a lot of listening before you do any speaking. This, and in terms of prayer, in terms of who's laid on your heart, who is it that's coming to your mind, who is it that, that uh, when you start to uh, thank the Lord for, for the different members of Austin Bible Church and you start to pray for certain needs, uh, start by listening before you start speaking. Be sensitive to the, uh, to the names and the faces and the testings and the things that, that are going on in the moment and that, uh, that the Holy Spirit would have you to, uh, to be praying over. All right, then the second part of the old point three is going to become the new point four. Believing is not wishing something into existence. Believing is not wishing or willing something into existence. We do not have the sovereignty to say, let there be, and there was. Okay? Only God can say, let there be light, and there was light. Okay? Only God can say, let there be, and there was. In our prayers, if we say, let there be, then that's going to only come as a response to a promise of God which says there will be. Okay, The promise of God that says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And so you say, Father, do not leave me nor forsake me. Or the Father who says that He will provide. And you say, Father, provide. Okay? There you are perfectly free in, in praying all things consistently with what God has revealed, but you're not causing it to happen by your prayer. God is causing it to happen by His promise. Important difference. In fact, our prayer life needs to be a constant subjecting of our will to His will. Not my will, but thine be none. Matthew 26, verses 39 and 42. Mark 14, 36. Luke 22, 42. Not my will, but thine be none. And the principle that comes in James 4 is that we can't say, well, next year I'm going to go to this city and I'm going to do this business and such and such, and then I'm coming back. We don't know that. We don't know tomorrow, let alone next year. Instead, we should say, if the Lord wills, we will go to this city, we will do this business, we will then return. If the Lord wills. Our prayer needs to be subjected to the will of God. God will accomplish His good pleasure. And this too becomes another component, I think, we do certain things backwards in our prayers as well as it relates to asking for the Lord's blessings. Oftentimes we tell the Lord what we're going to do and we ask Him to bless it. Would a better order be discovering what God is blessing and then doing it? <laughs> All right. 
find the ministry that he's blessing and pursue that. See, right now God's blessing our CEF ministry. And I, and I love that. That's awesome. And so we observe what he is opening, the door that Christ is opening. We observe where the blessing is taking place. And we're obedient to what his work is at this time. Because it's backwards to turn it around and say, well, here's what I'm doing. Can you bless this? Well, of course he can. But is that his plan right now? Is that his design? Why are you doing this? Are you doing this for him or doing this for you? We study that in the Minor Prophets. Yeah, what difference is that with Cain showing up with his vegetables? Was God pleased with those vegetables? All right. So believing is not wishing something into existence. We can't make it so by asking for it. Again, it's believing, not wishing, not desiring. It's not an act of will. Fellow is the verb, thalema is the noun. Prayer is not our will. And the people that misuse these verses, the name it and claim it crowds, the prosperity theology crowds, the crowds that say, well, if you just had more faith, you could, you could, you know, you wouldn't be sick or you wouldn't have these, you'd have more money or blah, blah, blah. They don't understand what faith is. They don't understand what believing is. They think believing is exerting their own will in a stronger fashion. That's not what, faith, that's not what believing is. That's not believing. That's, that's a vivid imagination. <laughs> okay. And we're told not to lean on that. And prayer is greater than that, beyond anything we could ask or think, ask or imagine. That's why I think the prosperity theology or the name and claim it approach is so sad, because God in His Word is telling us that prayer is more awesome than what you can even imagine. And the things you're asking for are selfish anyway. God's got better things than that for you. A faith prayer is a confident response. This will be the new point five when I get the slideshow prepared. A faith prayer is a confident response to conviction as to God's will. 1 John 5, verses 14 and 15. As we abide in Him and His words abide in us. John 15, 7. Apostle John was sure solid when it relates to faith and prayer. We'll start with 1 John 5, then we'll get back to John 15. A faith prayer is a confident response to conviction as to God's will. That's a faith prayer. When you're convicted as to the will of God. 1 John chapter 5. Alright. 1st, 2nd, 3rd John come after 1st and 2nd Peter. I know that's true. It was true in my old Bible. It's true in the new Bible. 1st John chapter 5. This is the confidence. It says in verse 13, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. That's the verse my mother used when she led me to Christ all those years ago. And we have the assurance of our salvation. You may know if you have believed in the name of the Son of God. Placing your faith is the, is the trigger. It's the mechanism God assigned to be the uh, faith response to the promise, the offer of eternal life in Jesus Christ. And, uh, and there it is. That's your assurance. Verse 14, this is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Now that I am saved, I am a son of God, now I can go before that throne of grace with confidence, with boldness. If we ask anything according to his will. Now, I can't ask for things that are not his will. That's not a prayer life of confidence. That's foolishness. See, God uh, has in his perfect provision, in his perfect wisdom, assigned, uh, you know, the uh, most of the prosperity guys are all about health, wealth, and prosperity, right? So uh, I'm going to name it and claim it. I'm going to go uh, bring in some millions, and then my life will be great because people that have money have no problems. So all I need is more money, and then I won't have any problems. Life gets easy. <laughs> And so I start with my name and claim it, ridiculous so-called faith prayers or not, but they're, they're really presumptuous prayers. 
And I start asking for wealth that it's not the will of the Father for me to have. I don't have the capacity to handle it. If it was the will of the Father, then I'd have it already. Okay? But right here, right now, He's provided for me sufficient for my needs, consistent with my capacity to handle. And there are not many mighty. There are not many wealthy. You know, tack that adjective in there because most can't handle it. And uh, besides, if everybody was prosperous, then how would the people legitimately with the gift of giving, how would they ever exercise it? (laughs) You know? It is interesting. If we had no more problems, why would we pray? In different, uh, different applications there. Anyway, so this is the confidence which we have before him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. I think most health prayers are not asked according to his will. Uh, take away this cancer. Why is that in God's will? If it's the will of God that gave the cancer. See, you know, think, think it through. There's a purpose for that cancer. And God gave it. Either in directive will or permissive will. But God gave it. The cancer didn't just pop up outside of the will of God. God's not up there in heaven pacing around, uh, you know, rubbing his hands and, and panicking and thinking, oh my goodness, what do I do now? This guy got cancer. I, he knows about it. He designed it. He crafted it. He either directed it or he permitted it. But that's a test that he assigned. And that test has a duration. And that duration is something larger than zero. All right? It might be for a day, a week, a month, a year, three years. It might lead to a healing or it might lead to physical death. But all of that is God's wisdom and His assigning of that test. He has crafted every component of that test, including how severe it is, how long it's going to last, what its conclusion is going to be. may not be the conclusion we want, but it's the conclusion He wants. And, uh, and, and how much it's going to hurt. How unpleasant it's going to be throughout its duration. Every last component of that test has been designed. Not just cancer. Any, anything. Anything. Maybe a big major life-threatening disease like cancer. Maybe a minor little goofy allergy thing. Maybe just a, a sickness for a couple of weeks or what have you. Whatever it is, it's the will of God. We're fallen creatures in a fallen world. Rain falls on the just and the unjust. Believers and unbelievers both get sick. Why are we are we exempt from that because now we're saved? Why would be why would we be exempt from suffering? Christ wasn't. Are we above our master? A disciple is not above his master. If he had to learn obedience through the things which he suffered, why would we not learn through the things which we suffer? So here's the key. Whatever's assigned, if it's a health, maybe it's a financial suffering, maybe it's a uh, whatever it is, like there's conflict at work or there's conflict at home or whatever it is. The Father has shaped this test and we're supposed to learn lessons in the test. We're supposed to glorify Christ in the test. We're supposed to bear fruit in the test. We're supposed to teach others in the test. Maybe the test isn't so much for me to learn, but for other people to watch me pass the test so they can learn. And yet, my first reaction when I get something bad is, oh, we'll take it away. (laughs) Heal it. I don't want it. Um... I have a financial test right now, so I need money. I got a health test right now. I need health. I got whatever. I got a, a personality issue with my boss at work, so you know we want him removed out of the picture, or whatever it is. The answer is not to end the test any sooner than what the father. See, we got to find the the epicenter. We got to find the conclusion, but it's going to be his conclusion, not ours. And then in the meantime, whether it's hours, days, weeks, months, years, or the rest of our life, we have to stay faithful. Be faithful until death. Okay? So it must be in accordance with His will. And we know, verse 15, that He hears us in whatever we ask. We know that He hears us in whatever we ask. If we're asking according to His will, if we're in fellowship, if there's no sin that's created a barrier between us and Him, then He hears us. He always can hear us. He does not always choose to hear us because of carnality and other issues. But... This, this passage is assuming that we're in fellowship, we're praying in His will, He is going to hear us. And we know that we already have, even now, the request which we have asked from Him. 
They're a matter of eternal provision. They were decreed before the foundation of the world. As creatures of time, we might not see the manifestation of those answers quite yet, but that does not change the fact we literally have the answers already decreed. The provision's already been made. How do I know the provision's already been made? Because He never crafts any test without also providing for the solution. With the testing, He provides the ekbasis, the way of escape, the victorious conclusion. God has never crafted a single test without an ekbasis to go with it. And so we can, we can pray for that. And pray that in the meantime, until our finite understanding observes the, uh, the provision then by faith we can uh, accept the things that we don't quite see yet, right? Isn't faith the assurance of things hoped for, the expectation of things not seen? Now, the best way to, of course, come under conviction as to the will of God is to be saturated in the Word of God as we abide in Him and His words abide in us. And that's John fifteen seven. So get back now to the Gospel of John, chapter 15. You know, it's always sad when a believer who should know better, but a believer is wrestling with will of God issues in the uh, email or call or visit or whatever. They want the pastor to tell them what to do, you know, say, well, I I don't know what the will of God is. How do I know? Well, I'm not surprised you don't know what the will of God is. You're barely paying attention in Bible class when you bother to show up. What... um, But a believer who's living in the Word of God, a believer who's intimate with the things of the Lord because it's saturating his thinking on a daily basis, uh, it's interesting how uh, divine guidance takes place in those circumstances. And so in John 15, if uh, the imperative is abide in me, that's back to verse 4, abide in me and I in you. That's an imperative. It's a present imperative. It's continuous action in present time. Make your abode. Dwell there. Make your home there. There's different modern translations for that. You know, I like abide, but maybe uh, maybe you like make your home or something like that. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. Is your home in the Word of God? Or... Is it something you you visit occasionally? Okay. You know, where do you live? Where do you live? And uh, do you spend much time there? (laughs) Is that, uh, does it fill your thinking? Are you at home there? Are you comfortable there? Is it it such a place of, of, uh, of comfort that you're, you just, I mean, you're there all the time. It's, it's yours. It's, you, you take your shoes off. You kick your feet up. You're, you're, you're very comfortable there. Or is, it a, is, is the Word of God something that you're a little uncomfortable with? You're not really familiar with? You, you still have some formality there. And you don't, um, you don't, you're kind of afraid to touch things because, well, you know, you might break it. <laughs> okay? Abide. Abide. It says in verse 5, I am the vine and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. See, there's discipline if you fail to obey this command. And they wonder why, um, why things aren't, aren't working out for them. Well, they're not abiding in the Word. They're under that preliminary chastisement, the discipline. We studied in Malachi, the preliminary discipline, if you don't respond to that, leads to greater discipline. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Again, this is a verse that's perfectly in agreement with what we've seen in 1 John and what we've seen in these other passages. But people don't read it that way because they want to only focus on that last part. Ask whatever you wish. <laughs> ask whatever you wish. So, man, that's that's it, you know. Cheeseburger, you know, whatever it is. Create it. Let there be. Let there be pluckers or whatever you. It's not about. It's not about whatever you want. See, 
Because what's going to happen to your wants when you're in the will of God, when you're living in His Word, when He's living in you? Your wants are going to be His wants, aren't they? It's going to be, you're going to have the mindset that Christ had that says, not my will, but thine be done. And you're going to have your, your wishes. So it, it, it is true to say whatever you wish, but that's in the understanding that your wishes now have been subjected to His wishes. Okay? Which is what happens when you abide in Him and He abides in you. It's a mutual reciprocal abiding. Is this not what Christ was illustrating? He was abiding in the Father. The Father is abiding in Him. He's wrestling in prayer, saying, Not my will, but thine be done. So ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Again, that's a faith prayer, confident response to conviction as to God's will as we abide in Him, and His words abide in us. I had an inmate one time in the jail that asked me, he said, he was a burglar and uh, of houses, residences, and cars and whatever. And he would steal to support a, a drug habit and some other things, alcohol. But he, uh, he was raised Catholic, very religious, very superstitious in his Catholicism. And he told me, he said, every time he, he would stop and he would say a prayer, every time, before he would break into a house, and his prayer was basically uh, that he didn't want to get shot. <laughs> he didn't want the people to be home. And he, he normally picked out places he thought people were gone. And it was his pattern that he would never, he didn't want to break into a house that people were there. But first of all, he would pray that the people would be gone and that there wouldn't be any weapons inside so he wouldn't get shot. And that was his prayer life. And and he found out, you know, he knew we, we we talked about, he saw my Bible sitting there and, and he knew that I was going to be a pastor. And, um, so he asked me, what do you think about those prayers? Does, does God answer those prayers? I said, I think, no. But I think God uh, has answered prayers in other ways because he got you arrested and he got you here. And he, now you and I are having this conversation right now. Uh, that could be the answer to prayer. Okay. <laughs> um. In any event, prayer, the selfish prayers, we'll see those here in a moment. Prayer is not just simply uh, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. God has not designed the Christian way of life uh, where each one of us, we get saved and now we have our own genie. You know, we just rub the lamp and whatever we want, you know, we can have women and food and money and all kinds of stuff. And just we live a total life of earthly hedonism uh, and whatever you want. Is that the Christian way of life? No. It's what does he want? What is his will for my life today? And that's how I can get engaged in these in these prayers. Finally, selfish prayers are never answered. James four three. Selfish prayers are never answered, and ultimately that's what we're doing when we depart from his will and we start asking when we start saying, Not your will but mine be done, then uh, we've turned it around backwards. And uh, those prayers are never answered. James four. You ask and you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. It's interesting. It says, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? Remember, you're supposed to... Um, Present your body a living sacrifice. You're supposed to be subject to the will of God. You're supposed to be um, putting on the Lord Jesus Christ and making no provision for the flesh with regard to his lusts. Um, but you let those lusts, you let those pleasures start to motivate your uh, your thinking. And it's just going to take you into the realms of carnality as an attitude. And, and then your prayer life is shut down. You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You're envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. But when you do ask, you ask and do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasure. God doesn't answer those prayers. God doesn't answer those prayers. Oh, I heard the greatest joke in Oklahoma City. I should share that, right? Uh, Dan Hardy. Anybody know Dan Hardy in Oklahoma? Do you? Okay. He, uh, he was the master of ceremonies for the missions conference. And so he... 
did all the welcoming and all the introductions and all of the announcements and, and things like that. It was a wonderful MC for the the whole conference. And then, but he also had an assortment of jokes, pretty much one per day for the thing. But he was talking about this little boy who was trying to learn about prayer. And uh, he, he was praying, asking God for a new bicycle. Really, really wanted a brand new bicycle. He, he had one, but it was old and he didn't like it. It wasn't as good as his friend's. He really wanted a shiny new bicycle, shiny new bicycle. So he kept praying, 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 asking God for a new bicycle, asking God for a new bicycle. And uh, he was never getting it. And then he finally figured it out. He said, you know, maybe, uh, maybe maybe prayer doesn't work that way. Maybe that's not how God works in prayer. So, um, so he stole a bicycle and prayed for forgiveness. Isn't that terrible? <laughs> that's just terrible. Well, selfish prayers are never answered. Selfish prayers, not by God anyway. It is interesting, there is another father, a counterfeit, a fraud, and he uh, actually enjoys making his own provisions for the flesh in uh, building loyalty on that nature. Um of course, demanding allegiance and other things, uh, the strings that are attached and the things that he provides for. Uh, but he would be very delighted to, uh, in fact, not only provide, but to spotlight how unfair God is for withholding this from you and how wonderful he is for giving you what, you know, the fun that God won't let you have. Um, and it's a tragic, tragic system. Because even believers get sucked up into things and they start making wrong decisions based on, on their wants. And uh, the God who provides for them is the God they start serving. And it's a sad, sad thing when believers who should know better start serving the, the adversary. So selfish prayers are never answered. All right. Well, this uh, concludes that area. We move on now to point two. We return to Mark 11 and we start to look at the cleansing of this temple. As he had done three and a half years ago, Jesus physically and aggressively halted the robber's den activity. Point two, as he had done three and a half years ago, John 2, verses 13 through 17. As he had done three and a half years ago, Jesus physically and aggressively halted the robber's den activity. And of course, they want to know what, by what authority he has to do things like this. And that's what they asked three and a half years ago, too. Who do you think you are? What do you, you know, do you run this place? This isn't your temple. You know, you're not a high priest or a priest or even a Levite. Who are you? By what authority do you do these things? And it is interesting because he actually has the authority to do those things. Not just divine authority, but earthly authority as well. He is the heir. He is entitled to David's throne. David had full authority to structure temple activities to organize their music, to coordinate their worship, to structure all things related to the temple. David even provided financially for the temple. Of course, his son Solomon built it. Um, it's interesting, the question that they ask, by what authority, he could answer a number of different ways. He chooses not to answer. But he's had to do it twice now. Not every harmony recognizes that. The good harmonies will recognize that in John 2, it's very early in his ministry. And here in uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it's very late in his ministry. The, uh, of course, the liberals don't believe God wrote the Bible anyway, and they, they have other issues where they try to view this. They, they view this as a contradiction, that either John was wrong or Matthew, Mark, and Luke were wrong. It's not a contradiction if you, you simply reconcile it and say that he uh, accomplished the similar activity on two different occasions. One early recorded by John and one late recorded by Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And so you don't have a discrepancy. Um, but I think it's a neat reminder that even uh, when you do deal with an issue, um, it may come back again. <laughs> okay? If a, if a pastor has managed to root out some, uh, some legalism in his flock, that's great. Uh, but don't be surprised if three and a half years later, you know, there's some more that has crept back in and you've got to root it out again, okay, or whatever the case may be. Um, 
Sure, he cleansed the temple three and a half years ago, but uh, is, are you shocked that they went right back to their activity again? I don't think. I think they probably resumed business the next day, <laughs> you know, or at least maybe a week later, or maybe after he left Jerusalem or whatever. And then, uh, in short order, they're right back into doing things the way they were doing it. That's uh, that's normal. All right, so uh, let's go ahead and hold your finger there. Let's look at the John account, and then we'll. Uh, this was again early in his ministry. John two thirteen through seventeen this is right after he uh, turned the water to wine in his first miracle, and then they come to Jerusalem, and uh, the Passover of the Jews was near. Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and he found in the temple. So actually, this would have been four years ago. I should redo that point. This was you got a total of three and a half years. You got a total of ministry, and you got four Passovers that you're dealing with. So this would be three Passovers ago. Um, Jesus went up to Jerusalem and he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and their money changers seated at their tables. And he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. He poured out the coins and the money changers and overturned their tables. Now this is a lot more vivid than any of the detail we have today. Uh, We assume that many of the activities were similar, but uh, they are spelled out here in a more vivid narration. (coughs) And those who were selling the doves, he said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business, a place of business. The vocabulary is slightly different than what we have in our episode today. Um, He does not call it a house of prayer in the John record. He calls it his father's house and he doesn't call it a den of thieves. He calls it a uh, an emporium, a place of business, a place of profit. The language is slightly different. Nevertheless, it is uh, clearly a similar activity to what he's doing on uh, Tuesday of the crucifixion week. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Zeal for your house will consume me. So now this is righteous on the Lord's part. He's not carnal when he's doing this. Not in John 2, not in Mark 11. Uh, On neither occasion was he out of fellowship when he got angry. We're commanded to be angry yet not sin. And zeal is a faith response. And it's zeal for his father's house. And this is a fulfillment of Scripture. Psalm 69, 9. And the Jews then said to him, What sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? Who do you think you are? What are you doing? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. They want credentials, and it's going to be the sign of his resurrection that if they have the faith to see it and respond to it, uh, is going to be pretty significant to them. The Jews then said it took 46 years to build this temple. In fact, it was still in the finishing stages of construction at that time. Um, and you will, And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believe the scriptures and the words, the word which Jesus has spoken. All right, so that was at the very early stages of his ministry. In the early uh, Judean ministry where he was ministering with uh, John the Baptist. And this is uh, early stages there. So we get to Mark 11 or Matthew 21 or Luke 19. They're all parallel. But in Mark 11, verses 14 through 17 then. Or 15 through 17. Then they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. Now, we don't have an explicit statement about a scourge of whips, and some of the other detail out of John is not repeated here, but clearly it's the same activity, and here he's just doing it all over again, cleaning house all over again. And uh, even more so than simply the sellers... Also the, uh, or the buyers, also the sellers, the merchants coming in, in verse 16, he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. Would actually stop them from coming in. I think about Nehemiah in the Old Testament who actually shut the gates and, and uh, here's all these caravans trying to come into town on the Sabbath. And, uh, and Nehemiah said, forget it. You just wait out here. You can come into town tomorrow. And of course they're businessmen and merchants. They can't figure out, well, 
you, how can a city be closed for business? What is this? And um, Anyway, here's the Lord doing something similar. He would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. I think uh, our modern approach to uh, marketing uh, is, is disgusting in the eyes of the Lord. Gary Gilley, uh, Pastor Gilley, and I forget where he pastors. I think he's in Illinois somewhere. But he's got a series of books. I understand there's a sequel. Um, I only have read the original, but it's called This Little Church Went to Market. This Little Church Went to Market. It's a wonderful, wonderful book. And you can read it in a single afternoon. So just a small, like our readers, it's a pretty short, short text. There's a follow-up, This Little Church Stayed Home. And um, I guess the next one is Roast Beef. I'm not sure what that <laughs> What he's going to do if he's going to write a third book. But... Um, it's a uh, it is a biblical evaluation of purpose driven and uh, seeker friendly and all the the megachurch trends of of the last twenty years and uh, about the marketing of Christianity versus the biblical pattern for ecclesiology and I've come to appreciate he's not a doctrinal guy but he's he's solid in the text that he's that he's putting forth and I've I really appreciated that uh, that book if you can't find it I can loan it to you. Um, well, here's the Lord now, and he's driving them out, and uh, he's had to do it again. And it's one of those things I think you, you've got to constantly be vigilant against uh, things in the church creeping in. And even if you deal with it once, don't be surprised if it comes back again. You've got to deal with it again. And maybe it's creeping into your church, and so as a pastor, you've got to deal with it. Or maybe it's creeping into your family, so as a parent, you've got to deal with it. Maybe it's creeping into your marriage, so as a husband, you've got to deal with it. And as you're sweeping out the creeps don't be surprised if it creeps in again in another month or year or a couple of years or what have you okay that's what happens when things creep in so um here he's doing it now for the second time and and uh and so we see it he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple and he began to teach and to say to them it is is it not written my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. But you have made it a robber's den. He's got different scriptures now that he's citing. And I believe that uh, he's got a little bit different emphasis that he's making, as he more so than he did three years ago. I think now there's a, a, a clear message here. A house of prayer for all the nations. He didn't bring that up three, three years ago. He didn't quote Isaiah. 56 three years ago there's a there's a um a sense here again i think it goes with the the cursing of the fig tree the the sense that they could have been on the verge of the millennial reign with gentile nations coming in and gentile nations bringing their tribute and gentile nations worshiping jesus christ on the feast of tabernacles that's not going to happen now and what should be the the international house of prayer is this uh, place of, uh, of, of religious plunder. And so the chief priests and the scribes heard this and they began seeking how to destroy him, for they were afraid of him. The whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. He's going to have a teaching ministry, which we see not only here, but in the parallel canon. It's actually further, I'm out of time. It's further uh, expanded in Matthew 21. Um, the teaching session. He's going to be teaching on Tuesday, on Wednesday, on Thursday. He's going to have a, a mini Bible conference here, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. And of course, Thursday night is game over. You know, the, he has dinner with his disciples, goes into the garden for his prayer and, and waits to get arrested. Uh, but he's going to have Bible classes in the temple Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday of the Passion Week. And uh, that's uh, <laughs> that's a good reminder for all of us that uh, we can't just retire or get lazy or quit serving or whatever if up right up to the day he takes us home. He's teaching Bible class Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Getting arrested Thursday night. So uh, there's a pattern there that we'll spell out. And of course, this uh, this has its own precedent in the fall of Satan from Ezekiel 28. So we're going to take some time next week to take you back through that. And I think... Um, I think one more session should finish out this particular um, stretch. And then we'll get to John 12 for uh, episode number three 
uh, the week after that. So this is the, yeah, stay tuned. We're going to make some announcements as far as the vaca- upcoming vacation and things like that. But we'll uh, we'll figure out uh, where we're going to break and then resume the class um, around Christmas time. So, all right. Father, thank you for your truth. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for the example of our Savior and the zeal for your house that uh, consumes him, Father. And uh, and I do pray for that, Father. We, uh, we, uh, we, we miss that sometimes, Father. We don't have the zeal we should have. And um, it's wrong to have the wrong kind of zeal, like Israel had a zeal not in accordance with knowledge. That's a problem. But it's equally a problem to have the right knowledge and yet no zeal. No passion, no zeal, no drive, no conviction that uh, the Word is something that we don't just know, but it's something that we do something with. We live it. And it provokes uh, a response um, according to your design. And so I pray for that as well. Thank you, Father, in Christ's name. Amen.